You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about adventures on the high seas. I'm excited about this episode because marine biology is close to Story Collider's heart. Our executive director, Liz Neely, was trained as a marine biologist, and our production team is chock full of fish nerds. And some of my most memorable Story Collider moments have involved marine biology. Uh, The first time we hosted a show at a marine biology conference, I decided to do a bit about how I hate dolphins, which, just to clarify, I'm glad they exist and everything for the sake of the ecosystem. But I just kind of feel like they're the popular girls of the ocean. Everyone loves them. And I personally just find it hard to respect an animal that is tattooed on the ankles of so many 10th grade health teachers. That's all I'm saying. But as the minutes counted down to the show, I started to get nervous that this audience of marine biologists might be annoyed if I picked on the star of the marine biology world. So I braced myself for booze. And then raucous applause. They loved it. I honestly could have crowd surfed if I tried. And that was the day that I learned that if they study a more humble ocean creature, such as the sponge, for instance, even marine biologists might also find dolphins annoying. They are indeed the popular girls of the ocean. So fortunately, neither of our stories today contain any dolphins. Our first story is from Brian D. Bradley. It was recorded in May 2018 at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles. The theme that night was Insights. So uh, before I tell you my story about my one and only brush with actual real-life science uh, and how I came to spend 48 hours uh, with a very strange man in an underwater habitat... Um, I need to let you know that I do not come off terrific in this story. In fact, I'm a real turkey in it. Um, I make no excuses ahead of time, but I thought I would give you a little context first so maybe you won't think I'm such a turkey at the end. Uh, Okay, so what do you need to know? Well, uh, this story takes place in 1988. Yeah, let me tell you... Let me tell you about 1988, my friend. Um, I was 17 years old. Uh, Ronald Reagan had been president since I was nine. Um, The Soviet Union was dead, and just like today, uh, nobody could uh, find Iraq on a map. Um, You know, if you turned on the news, you'd see a story of the Jamaican bobsled team, and Kokomo 
was a legit radio hit. <laughs> what I'm trying to say to you is, this was a very, very stupid and shallow era, and I was a child of it. So please bear that in mind. Okay. So I learned to scuba dive when I was 15 years old. Uh, the year before, my parents had moved us to Florida and my father had seen me go from a happy kid acting out, I kid you not, Kenny Rogers gambler in my bedroom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to a sullen kid listening to metal and just, you know, acting out. Um, he really was worried about me, so he signed us up for scuba diving lessons, and uh, it, it, it almost worked. I loved hanging out uh, with my dad, and I really loved scuba diving. But uh, unfortunately, by 17, I had also become a very skilled drug user. Um, mostly just like marijuana and mushrooms, but I'd also really gotten into amphetamines uh, in the form of prescription diet pills that I got from my brother who managed a Walgreens. Um, <laughs> yay, family. <laughs> So that was the 1980s teenage stew I was swimming around in. And it's also the reason that when um, my friend Matt and I got the opportunity to spend 48 hours in an underwater habitat helping the Canadian Navy to recalibrate the dive tables, I didn't say adventure and science. I said, rad place to party, bro. <laughs> so we gathered up all of our diving equipment and all of the speed, and we drove down to Key Largo. Um, and to a marine research center down there that operated one of these underwater uh, aquatic habitats. This one, a 1960s era model. And um, yeah, it was gonna be great. We were gonna spend 48 hours underwater and then we'd spend another 24 hours topside where a Canadian naval officer would use a Doppler machine to count the individual uh, bubbles of dissolved gases in our bloodstream. This was in order to help um, correct the dive tables, which are the calculations that scuba divers use uh, to tell them how long they can stay at depth without getting decompression sickness, a.k.a. the bends. It's very, very important work. Uh, thank God they had two 17-year-old Heshers high on speed <laughs> racing down in my mom's convertible Mustang to help them out. Uh, now, when we got there, we were very stoked and very stoned, and things went pear-shaped almost immediately because we were, we were told that we were not going to be alone in this habitat. Um, yeah, um, yeah, th this, we, in our anxiousness to get kind of crunk under the waves, <laughs> we had somehow missed the fact that this was like a three-person operation, so we were going to have a roommate down there and that roommate was a 50-year-old man from Long Island named Joe. Let me tell you about Joe. Um, so Joe uh, had answered an ad in the Key West newspaper and put himself into the study. He's not what you would call an adventurous man. He was short and squat and very, very nervous. During a simple scuba proficiency test in about three feet of water, he tripped on a mangrove root, fell face forward into the lagoon, sending all of his unsecured gear floating <laughs> off in all directions. It, it sort of told us that should this habitat flood in the middle of the night, Joe was not going to be a lot of help. But then again, we were high on speed, so... Que sera, sera. 
So anyway, we dove down to the habitat on scuba, and um, it kind of came into view. This is about an 18-foot um, steel pill-shaped structure floating in about 30 feet of water in this murky mangrove lagoon. In the distance, you could see these uh, shapes, just see the shapes of these mangrove snappers, which are large, scary predator fish with lots of gnarly teeth. I mean, they were super scary, but they were also very metal. And um, I was pretty into it. It was pretty cool. Um, the way that you enter the habitat um, is through um, um, up underneath the habitat into something called a moon pool. And when you come up into it, we got to see where we'd be sleeping. It was basically a dorm room under the sea. There were three uh, little bunks. There was a galley kitchen and a marine chemical toilet um, for your business. And then, like, there was a hatch that you could open up in the floor and climb down this little tube and at the bottom of it, suspended underneath the habitat, was a plexiglass uh, observation sphere that you could sit in. It was really, really rad. Uh, we were super excited to go diving. We'd been told we, we could dive nonstop for the first day and night, but they told us we needed to wait because they had to bring all of our stuff down to us. Now, because it's underwater, um, a bellboy doesn't bring your luggage. Uh, instead, a diver brings your sundries down in something called a dry pot, which is a sealed container. Um, since they only had one of these dry pots, they had to bring them down one at a time. And so we had some time to sit around with Joe, and we learned about his life. Um, Joe had worked for Pan Am, Airlines until he'd gotten into a dispute with the union, and then he won a court case, and then some very scary dudes came to his house and said, uh, you should leave New York permanently. <laughs> and then he did. He took his windfall. He moved to Florida. He bought a boat and was living on it. So uh, it was kind of weird, but also pretty cool. The scary part came when Joe's dry pot arrived. Um, so inside of the dry pot was, of course, his toothbrush and a change of clothes. But also in there were about six or seven library books, all of them chillingly about sharks. <laughs> kind of a strange thing to bring to your an underwater house. Um, <laughs> we asked him, like, are you afraid of sharks? And he said, eh, this is how he talked. He said, eh, no, I'm not afraid of them. I'm apprehensive of them. <laughs> Certainly. They're nature's greatest predator. They can kill you from below. <laughs> okay. So maybe it was a good thing we weren't going to be able to sleep tonight. You know what I mean? So we, uh, we decided it was a good time to go diving, and that's exactly what we did. One of the cool things about this, this uh, habitat is that you didn't need a tank to go diving. It was in, uh, complete with a hookah system, which is a long hose that uh, you can you, you know, use for unlimited air. And that's exactly what we did. You know, for the next few hours, Matt and I would pop some speed, go out, go around the lagoon a little bit, come back. Pop some more speed, go do the same thing. But that is not what Joe did. Joe did not dive at all. Instead, what he did was sit in his bunk, in his comfy sweats, and read his shark books. <laughs> so let me just recap here very quickly. We were stuck in a metal tube 30 feet underwater with a 50-year-old uh, drifter who was afraid <laughs> of sharks and was kind of running from the mob. That was weird to us, and because amphetamines make you chatty, we wanted to talk about it a lot. 
but there's no ways to talk about it there because it's no privacy. So we went down into that observation sphere to uh, to talk. So we're down in there and we're chatting. I mean, we are high on drugs. I mean, we are really going at it. We're talking shit about this real life SNL character that's up there. <laughs> we're having a good time. We're laughing, or and it was really awesome, or it would have been if that thing had been soundproof at all. But of course, it was not. And so when we came back up into the habitat, we could see that Joe had heard every word we'd said. I know. And I felt really, really bad. But, you know, I, I, you know, we thought, well, this has gone from weird to weirder. Maybe we should go for another dive. And so, you know, we started getting into our gear. It was dead silent in there. And uh, I said to him, um, hey, man, do you want to come with us? And he's like, no, I think I just slow you fellas down. Well, out we went into the, the lagoon, and at night, it was an amazing thing. The whole thing came alive. The, every hard surface, the rock, the habitat, everything was covered in these bioluminescent tube worms that just glowed, you know, with the moonlight and when we'd shine our light on them. And then, like, if you ran your hand across them, they'd retreat into their little holes, and it would leave a dark space. So you could, like, write your name in tube worms or... If you're a couple of 17-year-old metalheads from Boynton Beach, a pentagram and a dick and balls, uh, which is what we did. I told you I don't come off great. So, so after about you know an hour of this, we start to get pretty cold, and it's time to kind of go back in. And we come up to the moon pool, but there is a problem because the opening, the entrance into the habitat is now crowded with about seven or eight of those mangrove snappers that I was telling you about before. The big and the scary and all that. Things had gone from, you know, metal to life-threatening very quickly because we could not swim through that school of fish because if even one of them kind of struck at bait and accidentally hit us, that would be a disaster. So we just floated there, panicking. You know, um, wondering why they were hanging out there until we finally figured out that if we took our regulator, which is the part that you breathe with, the piece of equipment that you breathe with, and you clear it, a bubble, a column of, of bubbles will go up through the fish and would startle the fish away just for a moment so that we could swim through that fish-free window and get back into the habitat, which is what we did in a hurry. And when we got inside, the mystery of the fish was solved because there was Joe sitting on that chemical toilet. And he was fishing with some kite string and a bread tie that he fashioned into a hook and baited with a Kraft American single. (laughs) He was trying to catch these very powerful predator fish with cheese and kite string, which is of course impossible and also insane. (laughs) So... So he didn't mean it, of course. He apologized profusely. We know he didn't mean to hurt us. But I will tell you that as we were up all night unable to sleep because of these pills, you know, he was over there just snoring and smiling. And I really felt, I think the scales have been balanced here. We were absolute jerks to him. And he kind of tried to kill us. So that's, that's a wash right there. So this is the big insight moment, and I thought I knew what the insight would be at this, because I've been going out to dinner on this story for a long time. (laughs) I thought it was about, you know, the stupidity of youth and adventure, and that, you know, uh, Matt and I were the flawed heroes and Joe the rube, 
But now I really do not know if that's true anymore because now I'm 46 years old. I wear my Danzig shirt with a cardigan. (laughs) And uh, I'm just about as old as Joe was in that story, you know what? And just like him, I find myself full of fears these days. Fear of everything. Fear of that little pain in my neck. What is that thing? You know, fear of of spiders and strangers on my street. I'm afraid to drink the grapefruit LaCroix because I think it'll fuck up my Lipitor or something like that. (laughs) I'm afraid... I'm afraid of losing my relevance now as I get a little older, especially in the entertainment business. And I'll tell you what I'm really afraid of these days. I'm really afraid of losing the people that I love. You know? And if someone came to me right now and they said, you want to spend 48 hours in underwater habitat, I do not know what I would say. I cannot tell you what I would do. But Joe did. Joe knew. He put all his fears and all his doubts in that dry pot, and he took them down there to that habitat. And no, he did not go diving one time while he was there, but he was there. And he said yes to that. He kept saying yes to that. And that's why Joe is the hero of this story. And my insight is this. My insight is that, you know, the facts of our stories remain the same. But as we grow older, as we evolve, their meaning can really profoundly change. So I just want to say this. Joe, I'm really, really sorry that we were turkeys to you. And I want to let you know, Joe, wherever you are, that, uh, you know, as I kind of swim through the murky waters of middle age, you are an inspiration to me, sir. And these devil horns are for you. That was Brian D. Bradley. Brian started writing because he couldn't draw. And since then, he's written for shows like Mad TV, Scrubs, and Happy Endings. He co-created a television show, a version of Uncle Buck for ABC, and is the writer and producer of a number of TV pilots he's very proud to have been paid for, but that you will probably never see. Although I hear he's got some exciting things coming up soon. He's very pleased to have a chance to share a story for Story Collider, and he still can't draw. Fun fact about Brian, he is actually married to one of our L.A. producers, Audrey Kearns. So if you loved Brian, and who doesn't, stay tuned for a future episode in which he is a character rather than a narrator. In fact, in the meantime, here's a science story for you from behind the scenes about Brian. Last year, Brian was actually supposed to co-host one of our shows with Audrey, but at the last minute, he accidentally cut his finger off at the gym so it turned out he and Audrey had to be at the hospital on show night instead luckily Audrey's intrepid co-producer Joseph Scrimshaw was able to handle the show for us but Brian we're all thinking of you and your finger I think the lesson here is never go to the gym it's dangerous I should be safe our next story today is from Barrel Con it was recorded in November 2018 at Caveat in New York City the theme that night was urban oceans So the motto of the ship that I did my study abroad program on was ship, shipmate, self. And unfortunately, I spent a lot of that trip focusing mostly on the self part. 
I was a junior and obviously a little bit in my junior year, my first semester, things started to go wrong pretty early on when I was still on campus. I had my heart broken and just went into this spiral of self-loathing and just getting into a darker and darker place, which obviously was a little tough considering I was about to go out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean in the next semester. So unfortunately, that spiral kind of blossomed into full-on anxiety and depression. Great things to be going out into the middle of the wasteland of the ocean uh, a semester later, but I went out and did it anyway. So it was a tall ship, only about 134 feet, um, so full rig, sails, triangle, square sails, etc., Um, I had only been on very tiny boats before, so this was a huge learning curve. Um, And when you go on on a tall ship especially, there's a whole new language you have to learn when you're going aboard. First of all, there aren't walls anymore. They're called bulkheads. There aren't floors anymore. They call them soles. And I can't tell you how many times I got yelled at for calling the head the bathroom. They're like, what are you, some kind of landlubber? I'm like, yeah, actually, sorry about it. Um, so in addition to all of that, you have to throw some seasickness in there. And not only is your sense of motion and sense of balance completely thrown off, but I also had this extra layer of emotional balance that was thrown off. So I find that I, I found that I couldn't really relate to my shipmates. Uh, it seemed almost that every interaction with them was as if it was happening behind one of those cheap acrylic glass plates that are in those, those liquor stores, and you kind of have to talk between a tiny little space at the bottom. And it was really hard in order to actually be on this ship but yet so closed into myself, and yet we're in the middle of nowhere. So there was a, the first week was me just trying to get my sea legs and figure all this out, and I just, everything seemed to be going wrong. Like, not only could I not figure out how to walk on this boat, but I'd be smashing into the side, so I'd be getting bruised, and I had bruises on top of bruises, and just getting yelled at for making stupid mistakes because with this loop of anxiety in my head, I was screwing up the most basic instructions. And it's like, wow, I can't even pull on a rope. This is something's wrong here. So after that first week, I decided, okay, I'm on my deck watch. I'm going to go down below decks and do an inspection of the engine room because we had to do that once every hour you know, to make sure the ship's not going to explode. So kind of important. And I went down into the hold, checked on everything, seemed like the engine was running just fine, so I was ready to head back up above decks. And the bottom of the hold has all these watertight doors that are in this passageway. It's basically a crawl space. It's airless down there. It's hot down there. It smells like engine oil. It smells awful. And you can feel all the motion of the boat because you're right at the very bottom of it. So... You're supposed to close the watertight doors after you leave because I don't know if you've seen the movie Titanic, but (laughs) that is kind of an important safety measure. So I try to shut this door behind me and the door does not close. It will not seal for the life of me. I'm struggling. I'm sweating. I'm like the air and the oil smell is starting to get to me. And this door is just defeating me at every turn. And that added to 
what the whole week had been of me falling and me making mistakes just became it just became too much. So, of course, my inclination was just flop onto the floor, or I guess I should say the soul, and, and just start bawling. And I just lay there in this pathetic little heap in the hold, and I was very grateful nobody was there because it was really sad. Um, and then after a while, it started to occur to me that if I was going to let myself get defeated by a door... There was no way I was going to survive and make it to the rest of the trip. So I got up and I kind of pulled myself together and then just threw my entire weight at this damn door and twisted it into place and it worked. And it was like, oh, okay, I did something right. This is amazing. So the rest of the weeks began to proceed. I was in from going on from there, went into this kind of stasis. Um, where I was still really anxious, still unable to connect with my shipmates. But I was able to go about my days. I'd collect zooplankton. I'd identify their species. I would collect sea surface temperature. But it all was happening pretty mechanically. Like, it was kind of as if I was working in a fog. And one day, I was not on duty, which was quite nice. Um, got to go up on deck. And, of course, we were, we'd sailed from Hawaii, so the weather was beautiful extremely just gorgeous and so I got to go up on deck and do some reading because I was off duty and I was walking up out onto the decks and all of a sudden the ship's bell started ringing and people started shouting and they're like man overboard this is not a drill and of course everybody just snaps into action we'd rehearse this when we were in the harbor in Honolulu luckily and that loop of anxiety that was causing me to screw up everything else fortunately broke because my instincts kicked in and I'd been positioned to go up on the lookout in this event of this kind of drill. So I ran up to the bowsprit. Everyone else, the whole ship was in action. Uh, people were throwing life preservers over the side. Um, all the people who were on sail handling duty were hauling down the sails and getting our, slowing our trajectory to try to turn the ship around. So meanwhile, from my lookout point on the bow, I look back, and there's my classmate Dan, just a tiny little speck zipping away into the distance in the smooth wake of the ship. And it was just this moment of like, oh my God, we're really out in the middle of nowhere. And fortunately, because my, my shipmates had thrown over life preservers and poles and things, he'd grabbed onto some. So he was, he was managing to stay afloat. That was lucky. Um, and he was holding on to what is known as an MOB pole. It has this flag at the top. So just in case you lose sight of somebody in between the troughs, you can still see them. And that was exactly what was happening. Um, these swells were probably between 12 and 14 feet. They were giant. So he would get lost in between these giant swells, but we'd see just the tip of that flag. So thankfully, we knew where he was. Um, and so fortunately, the, the team who were actually on the sail handling side of things managed to pull the ship around. And eventually, we got so that he was in front of us. Now, here I am on the bow, and he ends up directly beneath me. I'm looking down between the netting on the bowsprit, and he's just there with his life preservers. He looks up through the netting at me, and he just kind of, he seems very mellow, <laughs> considering that he could potentially die. And he just looks at me, and he goes, please don't hit me. And so I turn around, and I shout over my shoulder, turn to port! 
And so it go. There's this relay down the length of the ship, 130 feet worth of turn to port, turn to port, turn to port. And whoever's at the helm turns to port, and then he drifts to port with us. So I have to yell, "Turn to starboard!" And then there's this turn to starboard, turn to starboard, turn to starboard, all the way back to the helmsman. So eventually, Dan drifts alongside us. Fortunately, the first mate has some like badass cowboy skills with a rope. Because he gets this knotted rope's end and swings it around and flings it over the side like he's in Pirates of the Caribbean or something and pulls Dan back to safety, thankfully. And there was this moment, once we got him back on deck, we all just gathered in the stern and just kind of stared at each other um, where, and we just, all of us just hugged, even though he was soaking wet. And it was just this moment where I could definitely begin to see why they have that motto and why shipmate comes before self. That was Beryl Khan. Beryl is finishing up her second year as a master's student at Columbia University's Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology, where she's been studying the genetics of pollution resilience in oysters. Prior to starting grad school, she worked as an educator and restoration tech at Randall's Island Park in New York City, which cemented her niche as an urban marine ecologist. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Joseph Scrimshaw, Audrey Kearns, Nissa Greenberg, and Tracy Rowland. The podcast is produced by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Lyric Hyperion and Caveat for hosting these shows and to the ocean for being so full of adventure. Thank you for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.